0: On today's episode I answer one of the most common questions I get surrounding concussion. And sports injury therapist, and welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. We're rolling along through season two. This is episode number 90. And for episode number 90, I have chosen a really popular question I get working in the field of concussion on a regular basis predominantly by parents regarding their children. And that is, can I prevent a concussion? This might be in an individual that's never had a concussion history. It may be somebody that's had one concussion and obviously doesn't want to go through that again because it's not the most comfortable thing to go through. And so I get this question a lot. What are things I can do to prevent a concussion? Or if I've had multiple concussions and I don't want to get subsequent ones down the line, what are things that I can do? So the big question becomes is can we do that? In the research, is there something clear-cut that prevents a concussion? The reality of it is, unfortunately, the clear answer is no. What I want to do during this podcast is discuss some of these topics and see whether there are some things within the research currently or discuss some of the things within the research that are out there and that are quite popular in terms of the messaging about concussion and just kind of break them down a little bit and give my opinion on them. Like I said before, there's there's no way of preventing a concussion per se. I guess one of the questions subsequent to that is, is there a way that we can minimize concussions or maybe mitigate risk? I think that answer is a little bit muddy, and the, the reality of it is, is I don't really know, and I'm not sure that there is anybody that actually does. Also, in under the question of preventing or mitigating risk, are there ways that we could maybe prevent individuals from getting into the post-concussive or persistent symptoms category? So... For those of you that don't know, concussions typically characterized in a window of zero to 30 days, so day zero being the day of injury to 30 days, post-concussion syndrome is 30 days to three months, and persistent symptoms is three months or longer. I think that if we discuss reducing the likelihood of putting people into the, the post-concussive or persistent phase, I think there's maybe a little bit more weight in that conversation because we do know that there are things like early intervention, early exercise and education, and early evidence-based management typically have better outcomes in terms of likelihood of recovery so that individuals typically recover a little bit more quickly, as well as individuals have a lesser likelihood of falling into the post-concussive or persistent symptoms category. So in terms of maybe preventing the likelihood of getting a concussion. We don't really have any great answers, but are there ways that we can mitigate risk? Probably, as well as are there ways that we can prevent individuals from maybe a longer prognosis or recovery? There might be ways that we can do that in terms of, again, education and management. So let's talk about education first and foremost. We know that in terms of research, the research world, concussion still pretty much in its infancy. I would say that over the last maybe two decades, the, the emergence of research in the concussion world has really, really taken off, but two decades in the research world is, is still pretty new. Now, the fallout of that has been some great educational opportunities as well as organizations that have developed around the education of concussion particularly in the recognition of signs and symptoms, what are individuals experiencing or what might you go through after suffering a head injury, and really trying to take away the stigma around concussion and encourage reporting of symptoms. One of the interesting topics of research in the concussion world is the difference between the likelihood of females or males to get a concussion and There are two emerging topics. Females seem to get concussions a little bit more or experience concussions a little bit more. And two of the emerging topics are, one, that females generally report symptoms more. So the question becomes is, well, are these numbers being skewed because of reporting? We also know that typically the higher the level the athlete, so whether they're competing, for example, at the collegiate level versus amateur, the likelihood that they will report might be a little bit lower the more important their sport is to their identity because they don't want to lose their spot on the team. So understanding that males have a less likelihood of reporting at mass as well as the importance of the individual's sport regarding their symptoms is also important in terms of understanding risk and understanding whether that individual may be actually suffering from a concussion post-concussion syndrome or persistent symptoms and they just haven't reported it I've had a number of conversations with professional athletes over the years that have said look I'm coming to you and this is my second or third concussion the first concussion I had I played for six or eight months with symptoms I didn't tell anybody the reason that I did that is because you know I'd been struggling to make the lineup I finally made the lineup and As a result of that i didn't want to lose my spot on the team so how does sport culture and societal culture relate to this sport culture is difficult because while there are processes in place in terms of the relationship between coaching staff and medical staff now uh, particularly in professional organizations is often quite separate where coaches don't have a say on an athlete's return to sport at the amateur level where medical staffs aren't as common coaches often have a say in an athlete's return to play and while sport culture is getting better there are still certain contact sports and depending upon the coach that you have that will encourage you to kind of tough it out and play through certain symptoms while this might work for maybe a sore ankle it doesn't necessarily have the best outcomes when you're dealing with a brain injury so sport culture, and then as well as societal culture, are individuals being encouraged to be tough and tough things out. And it doesn't necessarily work that well when you're dealing with a brain injury, because the longer it goes on, the more complex it becomes. And then you're dealing with having to get resources. And the person ultimately is feeling a little bit guilty themselves because they in fact know that look I've had this injury for a period of time I haven't reported it because I didn't feel as though I wanted to be a complainer I didn't want to look weak I really really valued my sport and my identity within that sport or my role within the family, and maybe that individual is the sole earner, income earner within the family. So there are a number of psychosocial factors that go into education and reporting. However, from a injury standpoint, and if you're listening to this, and you've had a concussion, or you know someone that's had a concussion, and they're sitting there waiting, or they're continuing to work or they're continuing to play their sport and they're sloughing it off and just saying oh you know I'm dealing with this headache but I'm fine I would very much encourage that individual to get early management by somebody that is well versed in concussions so they can prevent the long-term dealing with symptoms and it only becomes more difficult for that person to deal with symptoms the longer that they persist so education is a really really big one in going, Forward in trying to mitigate risk and preventing people from having longer term symptoms following an injury, as well as it goes a long way in coaches, parents, athletes, teachers, kids on the school ground, and recognizing the signs and symptoms and getting that management in early. Now, does that mean that the education piece in and of itself is going to prevent the number of concussions? No, but it may prevent some of these, again, longer term symptoms. The second question that I often get is, what about supplements? Are there supplements that I can take that would prevent a concussion? And this area is very, very gray, and I'd say it's it's not really being well-researched. There are a couple of supplements that are commonly discussed, supplements and or sort of hormones. Um, creatine is a really popular one that's discussed often fish oil is one that's discussed quite often and progesterone is also discussed now the reason that these are discussed is there's some research showing that these are brain saving or neural protective in a way and so the question becomes is that look if i take these will that decrease my likelihood of getting a concussion i just don't think we can make those assumptions The other question then becomes, okay, well, if I get a concussion, can I take something immediately to, again, mitigate risk and make me heal quicker? Again, very difficult to say, mainly because following a concussion, things happen so quickly. Usually within two to four hours is the biggest sort of cascade of events, and many people don't necessarily feel symptoms within that time period and or they've been in such a substantial accident, let's say it's a motor vehicle accident, that within that two to four hour time frame, maybe they're being transported to the hospital and going through that kind of emergency care sequence where you know supplementation is the last thing that's on their mind. So while there are supplements that people can take for general health and wellness and overall brain health, which is still out in the research whether that can help with actual symptoms of post-concussion syndrome or persistent symptoms the reality is is that there is no supplement that will prevent a concussion from happening next we have things like lifestyle factors is the individual playing say a contact sport is the individual sleeping well is the individual have a good diet again Just because you have a good diet and you're sleeping well and you're not playing a contact sport, it doesn't mean that you are eliminating your risk of getting a concussion. We do know that concussions in certain sports like football, female soccer, rugby are higher. So whether you're playing a contact sport or not might increase your risk. But we do know that like everything, overall health and wellness is important to just resilience and It doesn't mean that because you're sleeping well, you're taking care of your mental health, you're exercising on a regular basis, you're eliminating risk. However, if you're taking care of yourself and you have a good health profile, generally speaking, we know that a poor health profile in injury, disease, is difficult to deal with. And it's one element or one more element rather that makes coming back from injury, just that little bit more troublesome. And so taking care of yourself is important. But again, taking care of yourself doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to get a concussion. The next two topics are super interesting to me. The first is about preventative programming. And you know, in sport, we talk about preventative programming and the reduction in the onset of injuries in general across all musculoskeletal medicine. For example, we know that one of the biggest or highest incident injuries in female soccer is non-contact ACL injuries, an injury to the ligament in the knee. And I've done some episodes on on ACL and knee injuries in the past as well on the podcast, so be sure to check those out. So as a result of that... One of the things that we've seen and the higher the level of sport the more that you'll see this is sort of hip strengthening programs and quadricep and hamstring dominant programs worked into strength and conditioning to try and prevent the number of knee injuries particularly non-contact knee injuries that we see in those sports. Now oddly enough female soccer is also one of the highest rated sports for concussion and again one of the The second reasons why we think female concussions might be a little bit higher is a lack of strength of the cervical neck flexors. And while this hasn't been definitively proven in the research, this is an ongoing area of interest in the research of concussion and concussion prevention could preventative programs particularly neck strengthening programs in all contact sports and we're seeing the emergence of more of this again in the strength and conditioning world prevent concussions again very difficult to say because you can never kind of wind back time and say look if you didn't do this program you would have got a concussion anyway or if you did this program you wouldn't have got a concussion but I think that Particularly in sports where we're seeing these higher incident rates, we would be doing our athletes a favor by starting to incorporate some of these neck strengthening programs into their activities of everyday training, so to speak. And even if it's not going to prevent concussion, we do know that it's going to increase sort of neck strength over time and there's research to support that these programs will in fact do that and so if your athlete is getting stronger and you're using this not as their sole program so you're not saying look we're not giving any other strengthening we're just doing neck strengthening programs because we don't want our athletes to get concussions i don't think that is a reasonable approach but if we're working it into a strengthening routine where they're doing it once or twice a week and the other days they're doing upper body and lower body splits or what have you and the higher the level of sport the more tailored the strength and conditioning program might be. I think this is a reasonable place to start and I certainly encourage all of the individuals that I see that are playing a sport particularly if I feel as though some of the symptoms are being driven by their neck or Even the idea that their neck is weak or their neck is painful, we also see that a lot where athletes aren't maybe going in for a tackle, going in for a ball, or going in for a play because they feel neck stiffness or pain or they feel that inherent tentativeness around going into these plays because they're not feeling strong enough. In that respect, the neck strengthening program can also provide individuals a little bit more confidence. So there are a number of reasons as to why neck strengthening might be positive. And at large, there are very little risks to it. There are certainly going to be individuals that aren't going to be able to partake in this, but I would think that the percentage would be quite low. And so I do think the area of preventative programming is a really interesting area with more upside than downside. And I think it would be great to see more preventative programming in terms of concussion particularly or just in general sport if we don't want to call it concussion but in general context sport I think it would be great to see at the amateur level particularly because we're seeing it more in the professional level but at the amateur level more neck strengthening going into the general strength and conditioning routines that individuals are going through. The second area that's really, really popular is the devices area. And I've done a whole episode, I think it was three or four episodes ago, on helmets. So be sure to check out what I actually think about helmets and the sort of industry of helmets and concussion prevention. The other area that's really popular is mouth guards. So from a marketing standpoint, there have been many companies that have come out with concussion prevention helmets or concussion prevention mouthguards they cite research often when they do this and they say that you know their helmet has prevented concussion in this research by 50% or whatever arbitrary statistic you want to associate with their particular helmet the reality of it is is that usually this research almost always is cherry picked or it's internal funded research it's not done on humans it's usually done on plasticized models and companies are making assumptions based on force vectors, and then just saying that, look, the rough forces that concussions happen at are this, our helmet performed better during these force vector studies, and therefore we conclude that our helmet will reduce concussions. There's a lot less research in the mouthguard industry. I'm not really sure where this came from, but the premise is, is that during a concussion, the teeth hit together and that somehow makes your concussion worse or the prevention of jaw occlusion somehow makes your concussion worse. The reality of it is, is that the jaw is not creating the concussion. The jaw or the teeth coming together is not creating a concussion. That is a byproduct of a whiplash injury and that injury has already happened at the time that the teeth occlude together. So mouth guards do a great job at preventing jaw pain, jaw injury to some degree. They do a a fantastic job at preventing dental injury, but there isn't any research to suggest that mouth guards prevent concussion. Now should individuals that play contact sports wear mouth guards, I definitely encourage that for the reasons that I just mentioned. But in terms of making claims that a mouth guard would prevent concussion, there's just nothing to really support that claim. So whether you're paying extra for a concussion mouth guard or paying a regular price for a well-fitted mouth guard for the sport, I would just go with the the latter and not shell out that extra money for the quote-unquote concussion-based mouth guard. The other interesting topic that often comes up is what do we have in medicine that can tell us or maybe look at examining risk for a concussion? I think this is a really interesting area. A lot of people ask about imaging things like MRI or X-rays and and looking at that from a preventative standpoint. There isn't really any great imaging technology that is within the general public or the general healthcare market that looks at the brain in enough detail to examine it even post concussion. I mean, there is some stuff that exists out there, but it's not within, in Canada anyway, the general healthcare system. Now, in terms of imaging that could look at preventing concussion, it just doesn't really exist. I think the area that would be interesting and needs so much more research is looking at like genetic testing and potential genetic links to prolonged or persistent symptoms. However, this is just in its infancy and there needs to be substantially more robust research as well as more longitudinal studies to look at that so while it's a interesting point of discussion and an interesting topic within the research world there isn't really anything in the imaging the medical imaging or medical testing market that exists right now in terms of prevention and there isn't even really anything that is good at detecting a concussion and that's one of the things that individuals are really trying to work on is like blood testing post-concussion and looking at biomarkers to try and get a true diagnostic tool to really nail down a diagnosis because one of the challenging things we know in the world of concussion is really coming up with a diagnosis in the first place and understanding that that's in fact what the person has because symptoms can be so ambiguous if you will and complex and, and multifactorial in nature but in terms of anything out there that would tell you whether you've got a, a lesser or more risk in terms of concussion prevention, it just doesn't really exist. Another popular marketing tool that's used often these days in terms of the concussion world is baseline testing. And it's become less and less in recent years. When I first did my concussion training or began my education in concussion, whenever that was, seven or eight or nine years ago baseline testing was all of the rage and almost everything was based on baseline testing. There was very little discussion around education management planning, things like heart rate guided exercise, treatment, vestibular rehab, cervical rehab, et cetera. The majority of it was around everyone needs a baseline test. Everyone then needs to score the same before they return to play and so on. And in recent years, The discussion around baseline testing has so drastically reduced, I think for a number of factors. The first is probably the recognition that to truly interpret a baseline test, you need really, really extensive training in the field of neuropsychology or neuropsychiatry. In terms of access to neuropsychology and neuropsychiatry in healthcare, it's often very difficult to get in quickly, frankly, and As a result of that, if somebody has just got a concussion and they've done a baseline test, it would be very rare that they would have access to that care within a time frame where the interpretation of those tests would be useful in terms of the recovery. Now, that's not to say that neuropsychiatry and neuropsychological testing doesn't play a role in concussion. It does. It plays a huge role, and it usually does in the more persistent phase. However... From my standpoint working in the field, I just do not know enough about how to interpret the data from these tests in a way that is useful for my practice, nor will it affect how I practice within my scope of practice as to what I can can or cannot do. So the the marketing tool of take this baseline test, it will allow you a baseline. This is all about concussion prevention. Number one, It's not really going to work in terms of the prevention field. It's just going to, again, provide data. And then in terms of recovery, it's very, very muddy as to what the utility and the role of baseline testing provides and serves. I think that it ultimately depends on what does the baseline test consist of. Does it consist of computer-based testing and other adjuncts, maybe some physical exam stuff? maybe some other tests that are out there that are maybe a little bit more validated in the research, something like the King Devic test, for example. And then how is that used during the recovery process? Is it used effectively as this is, again, part of our complete management system and it's just one small part? Or is it this is the thing that we need to track and this is the most important thing in terms of your return to play? because there are people that can pass a computer-based post-concussive quote-unquote baseline test still be symptomatic and return to sport and so it's really really important that if baseline testing is being used in the first place that it is just one component of the recovery process and in terms of being a predictor for injury likelihood it's simply not something that can be used to predict concussion injury in general so really, if we, if we can't prevent concussion, what should we do to ensure safety of just maybe people in sport, or children, ourselves, if we're working or we're living an active lifestyle? And so I'll just leave you with some general advice that I give to individuals A lot of this is around making difficult decisions because sometimes the right decision isn't always the easy one, particularly in youth sports and athletics. I see it a lot in discussion with parents about child has a suspected concussion or a concussion. They've got a playoff game in six days. Should they be playing? Should they not? Maybe the parent really wants the child to play. The reality of it is is that if you take any. 15 or 16 year old athlete and you give them the opportunity to play so you leave the decision up to them the answer is almost always yes I'll play so if you were to leave the decision up to your 15 year old son or daughter and say look do you think you want to play five days from now do you think you're going to be okay even if that player still has a headache or they're experiencing a bit of dizziness they're going to try to play the majority of the time And so it's important to really recognize that their safety is number one, and that sometimes pulling them from the game is the right thing to do, particularly if they're symptomatic, it's always the right thing to do. I am a sort of air on the side of caution therapist, particularly when it comes to pediatric injuries. So I am always of the notion that when you're in any doubt, you sit the player out, this goes for... Individuals that are still experiencing somewhat ambiguous symptoms. This also goes for acute based concussions. A lot of the time, even if they aren't showing as grossly symptomatic and you're sort of wavering one side or the other, I will always err on the side of caution and encourage the athlete to sit out of the game until they've been further evaluated and the symptoms have the potential to either get a little bit more substantial or go away completely so i really think that difficult decisions are sometimes have to be to be made and that is my first piece of advice to anybody is when in doubt sit the player out remove yourself from work if possible remove yourself from school if possible allow things to settle down and get evaluated maintaining general health and fitness has a number of positive side effects. So I think that that's always important. It might not necessarily reduce your risk of concussion. It may make you a little bit more resilient. Reducing contact in practice, I think, has been really positive for sports that have done so. We've seen it a lot in football, the number of contact practices that occur at the professional level. We've seen the removal of heading in soccer. I think that this is valuable in potentially reducing the incidence of concussion maybe over a longer period of time so I'd love to see sports continue to adopt those strategies in practices where full contact is maybe less important. Speaking to my earlier point about cervical strength and neck strengthening programs I think that might be a great introduction into some sports or teams that maybe aren't currently adopting that. And don't ever, in terms of a sport, play when you're symptomatic, no matter how long you've been out for. If you've been out for two weeks and you're still displaying symptoms, don't ever return to sport when symptomatic. Often returning to work and returning to school, some people have to return to those environments a little bit sooner because of demands at home or monetary um, demands. And again, while this isn't ideal, it's certainly understandable. Are you able to return to work with modifications that allow you to do your job a little bit more comfortably and effectively? And then will your employer work with you and getting you back to kind of a pre-injury status is, is always a great discussion to have. Really, the conclusion of this podcast is there isn't really anything that's going to prevent a concussion. However, with the continued discussion around concussion education, early management, having active programming and care, and talking about all of the different psychosocial factors that are influenced in the willingness of individuals to report in general, I think has come a long way. and we just want to continue that conversation so we can continue to bring awareness to this injury and get people the best quality care as early as possible in the recovery process. And help them get back to their pre-injury status, whether they're a professional athlete, whether they're an amateur athlete, or whether they're an individual like you and I that has a job, a career, a family, friends that they care about and simply wants to live the best life that they can. I think that's what's really important about what we do in, in healthcare and in all aspects of healthcare, and concussion is no different. So my question for you this week is: have you heard about any of these preventative strategies before? And If so, what were the narratives around them? I'd love to know in the comments below. As always, folks, I hope that you found this episode to be of value to you. Have yourselves a great weekend, and we will see you in the next one.